This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the emdocs.net podcast, we're looking at traumatic arthrotomy or an open joint. This occurs when a laceration or some form of wound disrupts a joint capsule, and that then exposes the intraarticular surface of the joint to contamination and then even infection. We're most commonly going to see this type of injury in male patients in their mid-20s to 30s, usually from a motor vehicle accident or some form of penetrating injury like a gunshot wound. The knee is going to be the most common joint affected. This accounts for about 50 to 91% of all open joint presentations. But honestly, any joint could be affected. It really depends on the mechanism and the site of the injury. There are a couple big reasons why we need to diagnose and treat these types of injuries. One of the largest risks coming from a traumatic arthrotomy is going to be septic arthritis. Septic arthritis has a mortality rate as high as 15%, and unfortunately, up to half of patients are going to have an irreversible decrease in joint function. Before our current era with antibiotics and our current therapies, septic arthritis occurred in up to 100% of open joints, but now that rate is less than 5%. Another big issue is the functional outcomes after this injury. If a patient has severe soft tissue injuries and damage to the bony structures, then they're going to have a pretty poor functional outcome. And if we miss a diagnosis, there's a delay in therapy with washout and debridement, patients can have chronic pain, they might have a limp, they're going to have decreased range of motion, and then joint instability. There is a classification system for open joints from Collins and Temple, which ranges between grade one, that's a single capsular perforation, or a laceration without extensive soft tissue injury. The severe form is grade four. That's an open dislocation or a neurovascular injury that requires repair. Basically, this means that higher grades are easy to diagnose. We're not gonna miss those. A grade one injury can be easily misdiagnosed because it might just look like a superficial laceration. The key here is a good history and exam. Patients will usually have pain at the affected joint if they're coming in with an isolated injury, but we've all seen those major trauma patients. They might have distracting injuries or they might be significantly altered. For those patients, obviously we're going to be first doing a primary survey and resuscitating. Once we have the patient stabilized, we need to perform a thorough head-to-toe exam and look for those smaller injuries and lacerations. When we look at the literature, Unfortunately, there isn't a single specific historical component that can reliably rule in or rule out the diagnosis. One study found that clinical judgment alone had a sensitivity of only 57% and a specificity of 61% for the diagnosis of an open joint. However, the history can provide some helpful information on the mechanism, if there was some form of a contaminate, and the risk factors for an infection like a foreign body. Any mechanism that might cause a penetrating injury, or if on exam you find a small laceration overlying a joint, that should raise your suspicion. If there isn't a laceration or some form of injury over the joint, you need to think about the mechanism and then try to understand the trajectory of the penetrating object. We also need to think about the anatomy of the area that's injured and then think if an object could have penetrated the joint based on the location of the injury. The exam can confirm the diagnosis if you see that joint capsule disruption. 
other things that can confirm the diagnosis include synovial fluid coming from the wound. That's going to look straw-colored, it'll look kind of viscous, or it'll be this oily-type substance. If you see bubbles coming from a wound or fat droplets on blood from a wound or laceration, you should also think about a traumatic arthrotomy. Unfortunately, we're just not often going to see that visible joint capsule disruption or the diffuse fluid coming from a wound overlying a joint. The more common scenario that we're going to see is a smaller laceration that's close to the joint. In these types of cases, the history and exam are pretty limited in confirming or excluding the diagnosis. We just need something more. When we look at the ED evaluation, labs don't play a big role here, but imaging can help us. You can start with a plain x-ray of the affected joint. If you see a fracture near the laceration, if you see intraarticular free air, or radiopaque foreign objects, these are all highly suggestive of traumatic arthrotomy. However, when we look at the literature on x-rays, they're just not great. There is a retrospective study published in 2020 that looked at diagnosis of an open knee joint. They found a sensitivity of around 78% and a specificity of about 90% for free air within the joint space. But when you look further into the results, about 80% of the knee radiographs that were retrospectively identified to have free air were missed on that first read, and this was done by radiologists. The authors state this was due to the fact that the radiologists were not primed to look for an open joint. So if you're concerned about an open joint, the key takeaway is to speak with your radiologist up front. Another study published in 2013 found a sensitivity of less than 50% for traumatic arthrotomy of the knee using plain x-rays. Again, if you see intraarticular gas or a foreign body on x-ray within the joint, the likelihood of an open joint is very high. But based on the present data, we can't use a normal x-ray to rule out the diagnosis. Ultrasound has also been evaluated, but the data aren't super promising. A 2019 study looking at the use of ultrasound in cadavers found a sensitivity of about 65% and a specificity of 75% for diagnosing an open joint. What about CT? There is some newer evidence supporting the use of CT, and it does demonstrate some promise when you're looking at the knee specifically. There are multiple studies that have found sensitivity and specificities that approach 100% for diagnosing free air within the knee due to an open joint. However, before you go ordering a CT for all cases of suspected open joint, there are some big issues with the literature. CT hasn't been directly compared with the saline load test, which is the classic gold standard. These studies also have a fair amount of bias, and then many studies look at free air only, or they're performed on cadavers, and it's nowhere near as good for other joints. For example, if you look at the elbow, there are some studies suggesting a CT sensitivity of 0%. The classic gold standard is going to be a saline load test. This was first described in 1975, and it's pretty similar to an orthocentesis just with a couple extra steps. All you're doing is basically looking at the integrity of the joint by injecting sterile saline into the joint away from the location of the traumatic wound, and then you look for fluid coming from the wound. Now, if you're concerned about an open joint, the best thing to do is to speak with your orthopedic colleagues early. They will probably want to evaluate the patient and they might want to do the saline load test themselves. However, they may ask you to do this. We'll walk through the saline load test for the knee because this is going to be the most common joint affected. First, place the joint in a comfortable position for the patient that allows you to access the joint. 
you need to be able to see the site of injury so you can see if fluid comes leaking out. And you also need to be able to see your track, which is usually opposite from the site of injury or the laceration. For the knee, this is going to be a position of gentle flexion, probably with a towel roll underneath. Next, sterilize the skin of the lower extremity from the distal quadriceps all the way to the proximal calf with either betadine or chlorhexidine. Then inject 2 to 4 milliliters of lidocaine 1 to 2% with epinephrine opposite from the injury, tracking along the planned aspiration pathway. Once you've anesthetized the patient, then you can prep a 60 milliliter syringe with sterile normal saline, some more lidocaine, and then use a 20 or 18 gauge needle. Insert the needle along the anesthetized track and aspirate as you go. Once you are in the joint space, you're going to obtain synovial fluid. At that point, you can inject some lidocaine first because this is going to be painful when you start injecting the sterile saline. Your next step is to slowly start injecting the sterile saline and look at the wound for saline coming out. That's diagnostic for an open joint. You can also range the joint, which might help you see fluid extruding. While this sounds fairly straightforward, it's almost never that easy. There's a big risk of operator error with this procedure. It could be failing to enter the joint capsule before you inject the saline. It might be that you don't inject enough saline into the joints, or you just fail to see fluid coming from the wound even when an open joint is present. Even if you end up doing the procedure correctly, it's extremely painful for patients. You're basically injecting a large amount of fluid into a small enclosed space. You need this large amount of fluid to have high sensitivity, but it really hurts. This means that patients often won't tolerate it. You can use procedural sedation, but most patients with significant trauma are not going to be the ideal candidates for a sedation. That's why I like to inject a little bit of lidocaine into the joint before I start injecting the sterile saline. Now in the past, methylene blue was used, but more recent literature hasn't found better sensitivities with methylene blue compared with sterile saline alone. The other major consideration of the saline load test is how much fluid you need to inject, and this is going to come down to the joint involved. For the knee, we're talking about 190 milliliters to reach a sensitivity of 95%. That's a lot of fluid. If you only inject 60 milliliters, your sensitivity is anywhere between 36 to 43%. For the elbow, to reach that sensitivity of about 95%, you need anywhere between 19 to 40 milliliters. Again, the greater amount of fluid you inject, probably the higher sensitivity. For both the elbow and the knee, if you range a joint while it has fluid within the joint space, you're going to increase the sensitivity. For the wrist, you're looking at 2.3 to 7 milliliters to have a sensitivity of over 95%. For the ankle, you'll probably need anywhere between 10 and 55 milliliters to achieve that 95% sensitivity level. For the shoulder, there's a single study looking at the saline load test. This study found an injection volume of 81 milliliters was necessary to achieve a sensitivity of 95%. When we look at the pediatric literature, unfortunately, it's pretty limited. It primarily includes case reports, and it's honestly based on the adult literature. One study published in 2015 found 47 milliliters injection had a 90% sensitivity in pediatric knees. But this study found significant correlation between injection load volume and age, height, weight, and BMI. Basically, all this comes down to is that if you're concerned about an open joint and you have a pediatric patient, your best bet is to speak with your orthopedic colleagues. Let's finish with management. 
The foundations of treatment are first speaking with your orthopedic surgeon. Second, you need to reduce and splint any fractures. Next, irrigate the wound if it's grossly contaminated. Fourth, provide tetanus prophylaxis and analgesia. And finally, administer antibiotics. Antibiotics do play a major role here, but unfortunately, there are not clear guidelines for the timing, the dose, or even what specific antibiotic to administer. Most of the recommendations come from open fracture guidelines. For a patient with a small laceration overlying a joint, you could use a first-generation cephalosporin. For more severe injuries with extensive soft tissue injury, then you'll want to add gram-negative coverage with an extended-spectrum penicillin like piperacillin tazobactam or gentamicin. You also need to think about contaminant-specific factors. If the patient has significant risk factors for MRSA, then add linazolid or vancomycin. If there's seawater involved, then use a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone plus doxycycline because you need to cover Vibrio. What are your big take-homes for your next shift? Traumatic arthrotomy can lead to significant morbidity and mortality primarily due to the risk of septic arthritis. If you're concerned and the patient has a high-risk wound, then speak with your orthopedic surgeon. Be careful using any single component of the history or exam to rule in or rule out the diagnosis. Obviously, if you see joint capsule disruption, that's an open joint. Plain x-rays can suggest the presence of traumatic arthrotomy when you see free air within the joint space. Make sure to speak with your radiologist before you've obtained the x-ray. The saline load test can be helpful for identifying traumatic arthrotomy, but it does require a lot of volume that might be intolerable because of pain. There is no evidence to support the addition of methylene blue to the saline injection solution. CT is promising in diagnosing traumatic arthrotomy of the knee, but it's not really ready for other joints. Treatment includes speaking with your orthopedic surgeon, reducing and splinting fractures, irrigating the wound if it's grossly contaminated, provide tetanus prophylaxis and analgesia, and then administer antibiotics. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.